This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. They think they're going to play the music live. Here we go. Let's see what happens. Here we go. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 3rd, 2022, the Live in Atlanta edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast, and this week the GabFest is live in front of a beautiful but anxious crowd at the First Center of the Arts on the campus of Georgia Tech University. I'm joined on stage, of course, by my co-hosts on my far left. Atlanta is, of course, the the city too busy to hate. And John Dickerson, that's kind of the John Dickerson nickname. He is so busy and so has no hate in him at all. John Dickerson of CBS's Primetime. And then on my near left, the second most famous non-practicing lawyer in the Yale University class of 1999, Emily Bazelon. Thank you. Emily Bazelon, who is the most famous non-practicing lawyer from the Yale University Law School class of 1999? Well, I'm actually the class of 2000, but I think you might be speaking of (laughs) Stacey Abrams. Although, yeah, right? Why did you take an extra year to graduate? (laughs) So you're the most famous non-practicing lawyer from the Yale class of 2000. 2000. I don't know, but anyway. Why aren't you you losing a governor's race somewhere? (laughs) did not like that. <laughs> not like that. You just lost them. Yes. One minute yes. in. Come back. We first can all you, share First that you view. promised a live band and there wasn't one. And then you and then you said mean things about apparently the person they want to become. This week on the <laughs> All right. This week on the GabFest, the election is underway in Georgia and around the country. We will talk to Atlanta's own Rose Scott about what's happening here and about how the rest of the election might unfold. Then the shocking attack on Paul Pelosi and how it is a harbinger of a surge in political violence when we will somehow connect that to Elon Musk and Twitter. And then the Supreme Court prepares to get rid of affirmative action in higher education. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. The election is underway. Every single person in the state of Georgia, except the people who are here tonight, is currently canvassing, I think, for either Warnock or or Walker. Uh, And... Americans are voting everywhere. We are going to talk about the state of the race across the country, but especially in Georgia. And to do that, we have a great guest. Rose Scott is the host of the midday news program, Closer Look, on WABE, Atlanta's NPR affiliate. Rose, welcome to the GabFest. to benefit from the home talent. Like, These are my people. Come exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> We're just drafting These and These are my folks. That. What's up, y'all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we got a lot of work to do because David's fucked it up already. Yeah, exactly. Help us bring them back in. Yeah, they were like, wait till you're introduced and you just start talking. I was like, well, okay. I can cuss. <laughs> this is a podcast where I get to cuss. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, it's yes. true. Wow. No, just... 
Throw off those NPR shackles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do want to say that I, I'm flattered that my picture is bigger than the rest of y'all's. <laughs> I didn't ask that, but it's pretty cool. So. <laughs> That's what's up. All right, Rose, let's start with you. So it is to those of us who do not live in Georgia, maybe to those of you who do live in Georgia, it is baffling, perplexing, mysterious, bizarre, almost incomprehensible that Herschel Walker might very well win the Senate election uh, and that he is certainly neck and neck with your Senator Raphael Warnock. Can you explain to us non-Georgians why that is happening? (laughs) That's your first question, man, really? That's why he wouldn't tell you what it was before. (laughs) Uh, Wow. Now I know how people feel when I'm on the other side of this. You know, uh, Georgia is uh, Georgia is one of those states where we always talk about the favorite son, or you know, the, they're a product of the the state. Um, Herschel Walker is a football legend. Went to UGA. He's a Georgia Bulldog. You know, I know I'm on Tech's campus. Ease up, ease up. <laughs> They're very jumpy. Yeah, I know, but come on, Tech. Nah, y'all don't want me to talk about sports with y'all, so just <laughs> let us sister talk. <laughs> um, he's football legend. He's he's a Georgia boy. I mean that, you know, uh, with respect. And I think no matter who's going to be up against Senator Warnock, it's somebody with the R behind their name. It's Republican, and and. You know, if you're thinking, well, are you trying to be nice? Well, look, I am a journalist. You know, my job is to be fair, not objective. There's a difference. My job is to be fair. So I'm going to be fair. Um, while it is baffling, but then if you know the state and you know how politics work, it is not surprising that, that Herschel Walker is the Republican candidate. He was the right type of candidate to go up against Senator Warnock for the Republicans in this state. Let's just be really clear about that. Through their lens, he was. Why? He's a black man, number one. He's got Georgia ties. Purdue couldn't get it done, you know. Uh, He is the, he is not going to be a a candidate that's gonna go against the base. And y'all know that. Come on. So he's, he's not, look, he has said, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, because that's what Republicans believe and that's what people want. They want him in Washington so they can vote the way that they want him to vote. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's nothing, there's, there's no science, science behind, how is this happening? It happens. You got the candidate that you want that has the best chance of beating Raphael Warnock, who is also a black man. This is, this is amazing. In Georgia, we got two as they say in my house, you got two brothers going up against to be in the Senate. And so... <laughs> Charles liked that. It's all right. And so you can't, Republicans can't say, well, you can't accuse us of, you know, being racist or not, you know, ha- having a ties to the black community because we got a Herschel Walker. And now look where we are. That's interesting. So as an outsider, I was thinking of Walker as more the person who Trump kind of foisted on the Republican Party well, that in helps. Georgia. 
That helped. That but, helped them. Right, but you're making a good political argument for him that's separate from Trump's influence. Look, which I, I, which is interesting. Look, <laughs> Ooh, y'all are tough. Um, the bottom line is this: Donald Trump carried a, carries and definitely carried a lot of influence. Let's be really clear about that. He endorsed Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker was the perfect guy for them to put up against Raphael Warnock. If he wasn't, we wouldn't be talking about it. If he wasn't, then the polls wouldn't be so tight. Now, would we? Whether you like it or not, it is what it is. And it's not crazy to think, if if you were building a candidate from scratch and you could say, I'll take a candidate who's going to eat into the major constituency of the other candidate and who has 100% name ID in the state. Totally. You'd, you'd want those two qualities and no other qualities. So He has no other qualities, <laughs> I think. Well, but, I mean, I think... He, but he, I mean, Rose, you're right. He also, as a senator, will vote the way he's a Republican's vote. And so from the point of view of the voters, once he is the candidate, it's the opposite of crazy to support him if you support those policies. I mean, I have a question, which I guess is both... And the voters have said that. Voters have said, in a sense, I I think we have two of the finest uh, political reporters and Sam Greenglass and Raul Bali, and they have said, look, Rose, we have talked to voters, and they've said, I don't care about the abortion issues. I don't care about the domestic. Will he vote the way I want him to vote when he's up in Washington? And the answer is yes, that's why we want him. And they may give you the majority of the Senate. I mean, and which goes back to, you know, the judges. And and, uh, I mean, if you look at what happened in 2014 when the Republicans picked up, I think, six seats, um, it essentially allows Mitch McConnell to basically stiff arm Obama on the Supreme Court gets Donald Trump elected, and there are now three conservatives on the court. I mean, it's, it's, like a, it's almost, of course, you're going to run a candidate who um, has those two powerful qualities in today's politics and doesn't need any others. John and, and Rose, and actually Emily, sure, why not? Uh, Democrats, <laughs> Democrats are going to have to find a new or better story to tell about race and representation in politics, it feels like, that, that if you look across the country, there are Republican candidates who are Latino, who are black, who are Asian American, who are women. And there's been this premise, I think, that the Democratic Party has relied on. It's like you, you can't trust the Republican Party because, because the candidates don't look like you. But now they're running candidates who do look like black people, who do look like Latino people, who do look like women, because they are those things. And is how... How is the Democratic Party supposed to adjust to that? No, let me, let me back up for a second. The Democratic Party has had a problem in keeping their promises to people of color, first of all. And issues that affect the, that community. The Democratic Party has had a problem, and people have been talking about, well, Stacey Abrams has a problem with black men. No, the Democratic Party has had a problem keeping their promises to black men and and keeping their promises as it relates to policies that affect brothers. Let's be really clear about that. So when we talk about, well, the Republican Party is, is their their demographics are changing in terms of who they're attracting, they may be attracting those people, not necessarily because they're running folks that are are black and brown, that could be a part of it, but they're also attracting folks because some folks are tired of the empty promises from the Democrats. Let's just be really clear about that. 
different part of Georgia politics. Can we talk about voting and um, your new law, which added some restrictions to early voting? Um, there are tens of thousands of challenges being brought that, as I understand it, local election officials have to investigate, which constrain their resources. Can, and yet, it seems like early voting's up. It doesn't mean that overall um, more people will vote in the end, and it doesn't mean that voter suppression isn't an issue. But do you have a sense of how that new law is playing into Georgia politics this time around? Or do you think that we'll just have to have at least this election before we can really assess the impact? You know, this is the, I mean, this general election, this is the first major uh, general election under the new Georgia law, which was Senate Bill 202, I believe. Look, Depending on whom you ask, you're gonna get a different answer to that. Now, the, on the Republican side, you might get, or maybe not, I'll be fair, on one side you might get, well, see, there's no voter suppression because we've got, as of right now, maybe two million people who came out to vote early. But then there's another side of that is, oh, no, understand this, because these laws are so shitty, folks are like, let me make sure I get to the poll during the early voting time period, so I know my vote counts. I don't have to deal with the absentee ballot. I don't have to deal with trying to find a drop box during the middle of the day when the sun is out, because if not, it's not going to be available for me. So it depends on who you ask. But the bottom line is that folks are out casting the ballot, and that's what's up. Do, do drop boxes disappear at night? <laughs> you know, that, they might. Really? So th yeah. the boxes where they're located is changed. They used to be located where you could go to a library, there's a drop box out there. I mean, who's gonna steal a drop box? I don't know. But anyway, now they're located inside a building and if the so building closes at 5 p.m., you can't get in there. Well, you know what, if, you are, if you're working and you, you, know, you don't get off till maybe 4.30 in this city with traffic, are you gonna make it to the ballot box by five? Hell no. So yeah, so things like that. So it could be that lens or it could be the other lens. So it depends on who you ask in terms of why we have nearly maybe more than two million people coming out to, to cast their ballot early. Why is Stacey Abrams having a much harder time? Do you think her candidacy, I mean, it's obvious that Kemp uh, doesn't have some of the baggage that, that Walker does, but is her, has her candidacy been flawed in any way? I don't think it's been flawed. I think it's just a different time. You know, Governor Kemp, he can ride through Look, I stood up to the president. I stood up to this man who said that, you know, the election was stolen. That is huge. He can say, I led this state. This is what he said. I ain't saying it. <laughs> Don't be too gross. God say, Ryan Kim. Uh, he can say, I led this state through a pandemic, COVID-19, and I refused to, to close down, and folks got jobs, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm looking out for rural communities. He can say all that. He doesn't have to worry about this this. Trump factor over here. Stacey Abrams is, yes, she's popular, but she's not as, as the kids say, she wasn't as hot as she was four years ago. But make no mistake, in these four years, Stacey Abrams has been working in the community. Uh, I'm gonna be very clear about that. But I also think that there is this, I, I say this about the Democrats, one of the continuing problems I see with the Democrats is that they always have just a few little, we gonna talk about this, 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 and hope that voters just stick with us on that, whether it's voter suppression or whereas you see the Republicans have, they, they, their playbook is, is huge. It's like attack Biden, attack Biden, blame everything on Biden and anybody that's a Democrat, blame them too. And you mentioned inflation, Ukraine, everything. The, it's a lie about 
Stacey Abrams told Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game out of the state. That's not true. Stacey Abrams never said that. But people don't care. They only hear what, what they want to hear. You can say, look, I wanted the Major League Baseball game here. Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden had it taken out, and it cost $50 million. And folks, he can say all of that. And Stacey is really, what she's trying to do now is tell folks, look, if you want the same four more years of not having Medicaid expansion, you know, now the thing that people need to be clear about too is that when you are a governor, depending on who's running the legislature, that's, that's key too. If Stacey Abrams is elected, believe you me, they are going to strip a lot of governor, <laughs> governorship powers, trust that. And the General Assembly here is Republican controlled. So Stacey can't just come in and say, woo, we're on Medicaid for everybody. It doesn't work like that. Laws. We have some strange as laws on this book in Georgia. Yeah. John. Do you know? Do you know what I just found out? And 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 so you know Stone Mountain, right? You've yes. got those three white dudes on it, right? It is Georgia law. You cannot take that down. Wow. You can't destroy it. You can't draw a little mustache on it. You can't you better not touch that. It will take changing the law to take that monument down of those Confederate generals. Wow. So no executive action by whatever governor might want to do that. It's going to be tough. It'll be tough. John, before we leave politics, just looking broadly at the race, uh, we're, you know, by the time we come back together, that we'll know the results. Are there any dynamics, any shifts that you've noticed in the last week that, that uh, interest you? First of all, we may not know the results when we get back together, by the way. just um, The election will have occurred. It's, well, e- elections will have occurred, but whether the counting is done and tightened up in states like California, and if it's at all close, which doesn't look like it's going to be in the House, but um, in Georgia there could be a runoff, and then control of the Senate is up for grabs, right. and, and Arizona is, you know, an absolute squirrel's cage. No, but it's they have um, hardcore election deniers running for governor and for secretary of state. Um, And so that will create chaos in Arizona, which could affect the Senate race there, which means we could be. So I just want to set expectations in the basement. Um, um, So the squirrel cage. What's happened? um, A couple of things have happened since we were last together, um, and I'll just take them all. First of all, a fact about Raphael Warnock, which I did not know, but according to um, something called Ad Impact Politics, in his two campaigns, he has now, there has been more spent on his two races. So for a single candidate, more spent on his two races than any other Senate candidate ever. He's the eighth most expenditures of a single candidate. The other seven are all presidential campaigns. so that was an extraordinary fact to me. Um, I, just quickly, what's happened? So there are a couple of um, real big challenges for, for Democrats. In the Wall Street Journal poll that came out um, just yesterday, there's been a 26-point swing um, from August among uh, suburban women from the Democrats to the Republicans. So Democrats were beating Republicans in the generic ballot, which is you ask them, do you want a House, do you want a Democrat in the House or a Republican in the House? 
in August, they said by 13 points, Democrats. Now by 11 points, they say Republicans. Mm-hmm. And that, that mirrors the poll we talked about last week that showed a similar swing. And I was skeptical because yeah. it seemed like a small sample, but now there's more. So evidence. one of the questions of this debate, one of the questions of this election was, would suburban women come back to the Republican Party? Because Biden, essentially, you can argue, was elected president because suburban women abandoned the Republican Party because of Donald Trump. So they appear to be coming home. The other thing in that journal poll is on the question of um, the economy, 48% of voters thought that the Republicans could better keep inflation under control than Joe Biden. It's the largest share in journal polling ever on that question. Another record-setting response in that poll was that 64% of the respondents said inflation... um, uh, Yeah, 64% cited inflation as straining their finances. And that was the record high in in their polling. So on the thing that is the biggest concern in their polling, by the largest number in their polling, people trust Republicans to handle it. So those are not what you want to have happening going into Let me ask you this, though. Who who are the respondents of this poll? These these are all suburban women? No, no. No. They're they're the normal sampling that the Republican and Democrat... Okay, but this is the problem I have with polls, because the sample don't always sample what is supposed to be sampled. Indeed. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Y'all know what I'm saying? Yes. Sure, sure. And one poll can, uh, you know, certainly one poll can be overread. So I don't want to take this as gospel, but if you're going into an election, you would rather have these numbers on your side than than the other. And as Emily said... But ask people about 2016 and whose numbers were on whose side. I mean... Sure, sure, sure. But you, you... you want to have the error go in your direction. Um, so at, at this point, um, it, doesn't look, uh, it doesn't look great by the only thing we can measure before Election Day. Um, so With all the grains of salt that, sure, we that we've always... Sure, yeah, that table. we've always... Right. Rose Scott, thank you That's so it. much. All right, I'm going to get some oxtail. Have a good meal. Rose also gave us restaurant recommendations. Which we appreciate. Um, the brutal attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, comes at a dangerous moment in American politics. During the January 6th insurrection, rioters raced through the Capitol building carrying zip ties and weapons and yelling out, where are you, Nancy? Threats of political violence have increased tenfold in the five years since President Trump's former President Trump's election. And that means there were 9,625 incidents documented in 2021, according to the Times. Capitol Police have said that federal lawmakers have experienced a 107% increase in threats this year compared to 2020. There was, of course, the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Uh, There was the series of homemade explosives that a Trump fan sent to Democrats around the 2018 elections. There was an assassination attempt targeting Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, It's really dark. It's really dark. Emily, there has not been very much violence in American political life since the late 60s. There was, that's not to say there's been none, but not that much. Why is there such a resurgence now? So my theory of political violence is that there's some like inchoate combination of anger and frustration and venom and sometimes um, part of it has to do with mental instability and it's kind of out there 
And it takes different forms depending on what's bubbling up in the culture. So in the 80s and 90s, there were assassinations of abortion providers because that was super salient. And I think you can find other historical moments where you see what I would call political violence. I mean, yeah, some of the, um, you know, protests and the way that they've been, violence has been directed against black protesters in particular, by the police, by counter-protesters, right? The sort of Kyle Rittenhouse moment. It can take different channels, and and it, and there's some relationship to that and the targets. And I think that's what we're seeing here, that, you know, when enough um, political adversaries of Nancy Pelosi hold her up as a target in these with very visceral graphic imagery, and you have a kind of sense of feeding the beast out there, then eventually someone is going to be susceptible to that. And I feel like that's really, really what happened here. But why has that become tolerable, or why is that an acceptable form a political discourse now in a way like what what's been said about Nancy Pelosi and and the the kind of level of vitriol and demonization and and threats uh that just percolate all the time it's so much greater than it was 20 years ago where did that come from I mean I blame Trump for this and maybe that's simplistic and unfair I'll be curious what you think about this but when you think of not paying a price for what were previously completely unacceptable utterances publicly like blaming John McCain for being a prisoner of war you then I feel like you that he, he changed the norm in the Republican Party I mean in some ways to me what's been as or more disturbing than the actual attack on Mm -hmm. Paul Pelosi has been the response, which has been false information all over the place, this kind of weird snickering going on about the false information. It just, I I honestly, I'm shocked. I I can't believe it. I find it really, really alarming, like truly alarming that there isn't some kind of shred of solidarity in the political class that would make people feel, if nothing else is a matter of self-preservation, that this is not what you do when someone gets hurt. We should... And that, that'll get us to our Elon Musk conversation, and we should get there, but, yeah. uh, but let me uh, try to figure out which of the things to pick up on here. There are, t- it seems to me, t- two things, and I... Explaining one sometimes comes at the cost of the other. So I'm trying to think through how to do this ordering. And maybe for the moment, I'll leave behind all the things that have happened in our politics that have, that have affected both parties. Because there is an asymmetry in parties here. And the problem is when you describe the things that have happened in both parties, you suggest, no matter how many times you caveat it and, and talk a long time about it the way I am right now, you suggest that there is a, there's an equivalence in the two parties, and there's not. And the person who speaks most intelligently about this, to me, is Robert Pape. He's at the University of Chicago, and he's surveyed, the, uh, surveyed lots and lots of voters and activists and ideologues in both parties. And what he has essentially found is, so we've established that the victims are in both parties, but what is not true is the way both parties deal with violence. Let's start with the Democratic Party. There is a smaller group that he found in the Democratic Party that is willing to commit violence uh, for the purposes of redressing police violence, for redressing um, systemic racism against blacks in America. And you have the Bernie Sanders supporter who shot Steve Scalise. Sure. So that's an outlier. And that category to me is interesting because it's like this David Pep person because the person who shot Steve Scalise 
the the energy was in the air, but it was clearly a mentally unstable person who yes. grabbed that energy. And that seems to be a slightly different category than people who are protesting and deciding they want to burn something down. And justify means. And, or right. radical, yes. So what radical. he found was on the Democratic side, there is a smaller number of people willing to commit violence to get what they want. And most importantly for this point is that in these dynamics, you need both leaders and followers. In the Democratic Party, you don't have leaders joining in this. You have a random here or there maybe saying something. But in the Republican Party, he found not only a much larger militarized wing, to call it that, and, and, and if you look at polling, too, if the Pew typology survey of the two parties, the, the most sort of um, uh, uh, agitated part of the left is about 10 or 12%. The most agitated part of the right is anywhere from 30 to 50%. So it's just asymmetric, even when you're not talking about violence. But what Pape found is not only that it's a larger group that's willing to commit violence on the right, but there is a pitch and catch going on with the leaders, and Donald Trump is the first one. And not only did Trump engage in that conversation, but then he created, and any of you have listened to the show, I'm sorry guys, created this market in which it became a way to rise by playing footsie with these forces of danger. And when you see Marco Rubio at a rally joking about the fact that uh, Trump supporters tried to run the Biden-Harris bus off the road in Texas in order to get the approval of the crowd. That's what this new market is. And that's the market in which the jokey kind of sneering make immediate fun of Paul Pelosi when he's in a hospital with his head caved in. That's where that is different than the other party. Do you, do you, that was, both of you were, that was so eloquent. Can I just add one other thing? There were, I mean, Mitch McConnell, Steve Scalise, there were others who said exactly what you would expect politicians to, but the Republican Party is not run by that energy. It right wasn't now. unified by any means, and there were all these candidates who were stoking the laughter and the... Sure. Anger, and, including Trump, including, you know, Carrie Lake getting howls of laughter from audiences as she campaigns in Arizona. I mean, people who you would have thought would have wanted to be on the other side of that norm were not. At least, and I also right? how hard of a trick is it to pick up to to have some empathy for somebody who's gotten their yeah. head smashed in? Yeah, they're just it's so easy to be an asshole now. It's like there's so many rewards to being an asshole. And I don't I don't think it's the same as how it used to be. So, Is that your transition to Elon Musk? I was thinking of Twitter. Well, I was thinking, I mean, because I think Twitter pre-Elon Musk brings out and rewards the assholes because you speak in this really extreme or, um, you know, this like rhetoric, which is so gratifying to the people who follow you, right? You get lots of praise and likes and followers but, for being the voice of people who are angry on all over the place. Yes, and I think one of the things that's happened, which has happened just in the past 10 years, is that it used to be, everyone said, oh, the internet is a cesspool. Like, people are terrible on the internet, and they treat each other terribly on the internet. And then, but in real life, they're okay. What seems to be happening is that the that the, there's certainly the internet is still a cesspool, Twitter is a cesspool, but it's also it's that people now bleeding. feel they in real life they can behave this way because they have dehumanized others because others are not in the tribe and they are not real still. They treat real people as though they are not real. Right, and the rewards of the social media where you're not looking at people, you don't have all the cues for empathy are somehow now so present, right? It's playing a greater role and it's kind of shoving the in real life dynamics which have been better off stage to some degree. Oh, that's so depressing. And 
Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, I was, that's those, so those are the larger basket of behaviors that have affected both parties. So both the increase in apocalyptic thinking is, is found in surveys in both parties. You have a situation where both Republicans and Democrats think the other side is not just wrong, but evil. And those numbers have been going up considerably. Again, the distinction is that you don't have this relationship between followers and leaders. Um, now, and, and you would, you, you might cite, and wisely so, Chuck Schumer, who after, um, the Dobbs letter was leaked, said, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And immediately was, was uh, censured, I don't know what the word is, but like, that was the dumbest thing you've ever done, Chuck, yes, and you'll never everyone, do it again. So stop, the yeah. market in that party was, you're, a f you're an idiot for doing this, look at what you've done. And so, you know, Maxine Waters says um, ridiculous things, but she is on the very fringe of the party. When the Dobbs decision came out, Biden's statement had in it, don't do anything violent, don't, there wasn't it playing cutesy or anything with like, you know, well, there, there might be a Second Amendment answer. There was clear, clear message that don't react violently, and that's the, that's the difference between the way in which these forces which royal both parties, at least there is a larger share of the leadership that is trying to actively control them Whereas that's not the case do, in the GOP right what's now. What's your level of worry, Emily, about about this becoming a larger kind of actual hot sort of civil war? These have mostly been individual acts, the acts of violence. The January sixth is an exception to that, but but mostly the the acts that we've talked about have been individual acts. Are you worried that there's a possibility of actual sort of medium scale engagement of human beings? In groups. I mean, I think there is a greater risk of that right now than there has been since the 60s. And I'm thinking of the various militias that have been seeding themselves around the country. We've gotten this far and we haven't talked about January 6th. It's already happened. Right. It happened to some degree. It, well, but it didn't lead to a broader outbreak of violence. I, I think that's what David's saying, right? I mean, yes. It's but a for big some people, deal. it was a dry run. Yes, I mean, right. Well, that's right. That's another reason why I think the risk is higher right now. That dry run occurred. And, you know, it, I don't know how I, deterred people are really feeling who are into this around the country. Well, sorry. When, I, when a party refers to January 6th as legitimate discourse, you have a... You have a problem. I, I mean, I guess I do think, when I think about what worries me, one of the things that's happened, Georgia's an exception to this, but is that we live pretty separately. That's one of the things that's happened, is the, right. the tribalism of the country reflects geographic dispersion, and actually, the places where there are lots of militarized people and the places where the people they loathe live are not the same place, well, for the most part. And so the likelihood of a... But what, I guess what just to finish the thought, what does worry me is I sense that where I think this country could go bad is if a law enforcement agency, there's a, there's a kind of oath keeper kind of stream that runs through law enforcement in this country. And if the wrong law enforcement agency was under the wrong leadership and a law enforcement agency was turned into a weapon against a larger group of people, that's what really worries me. I'm less worried about these militias than I am about that. Well, you know, and there are various sheriff's departments around the country that could lend itself to that, right? We could imagine that happening. What may keep uh, political violence from happening is a total and clear victory by Republicans. But every time? Do we now no, no. have to count on that? I mean, I no, know you're I'm talking just saying about 2022. In 2022. I'm just saying but if you, you win a bunch of seats... And sure. you're having, uh, you know, uh, celebration parties, you, it's less, you know, if, if, you, if, if you, all you cared about was peace in the land, 
that would be probably what you'd hope for. Right. The problem is how long does that wish have to be Believe me, I know. Right. Also, the problem is that the violence and um, uh, is not a good basis on which to run campaigns. I also think there's another problem, and it's related to the separation, but also just in, about talking about this at all. So I was doing some reporting this week. I was talking to Republicans who are not election deniers about, you know, what the threats are and how to address them. And they were saying that they feel that the mainstream, to them, liberal media, has zero credibility with the people who have denied the election. That there's like 30 to 40% of the country that just everything that basically comes out of my mouth, probably out of your mouth, is already just suspect. And so when we start talking about political violence and we're saying, well, just on a factual basis, there's this difference between the parties, are we also kind of losing the people who... It just seems like there is this catch, this trap right now. Yeah, well, it's not just the election deniers with whom we have no credibility. We've got, we really have no credibility with a lot of people about, which is a big, big problem. But it's Um, worse on the right. Yes, yeah, but, uh, but... One contributing thing, Pew had a a poll out um, a couple of weeks ago that gets to this a little bit, which is that, um, so just on two... When you and Anne are having arguments, do you ever, like, Pew had a poll out about that, Anne. (laughs) And you have, take out your No, we know, because she's never wrong. (laughs) Well played, well played, sir. It's true. No, but I, I think this. I think this is what came to mind when you were talking, which you'll be the judge of whether um, it is it related at all. But <laughs> so Pew did this. Uh, did a poll that they've been doing since 1994, and it's the voter sentiment question, which they've been asking, as I said, since 1994. It's on basic principles of democracy, and two questions really jumped out at me. The, the statement is: White people do not benefit much slash at all from advantages in society that black people do not have. The statement is whites have no advantages over black people. So only 10% of Democrats believe that. 79% of Republicans do. This question was also asked about women, the same thing. Is it harder to be a woman? And they they ask the question differently, but you get the gist. 20% of Democrats say, no, it's it's hard for, uh, it's not equal ground. 76% of Republicans said, no, 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 there's no problem, there's no inequality. Now, the point here is not to, the point here is that they see the, there are, we've gotten to the point where people see the world completely differently in, in even these basic ideas. And so our ability to talk about anything else, it, it has to exist in that, weird, uh, that yeah. world. I would argue, actually, we haven't, it's not that we see the world differently, we've always seen the world differently. It's that we've sorted ourselves sure. so that the the group of people that see the world one way and the other group have now not speaking. Have, they're completely oh. managed to divide themselves physically by class, by profession, and so we've always had all these differences, but they are now aligned with it, politics it, in a way a, that that yeah. wasn't before. Last question on this, just to Twitter: it, Does America become a worse place if Twitter becomes more hateful? Short term, yes. Long term, if Twitter crashes and burns, maybe that is the best thing. It's also possible. And this is only part of it, but I really think it would be the best thing for journalism, for American journalism. Well, either that or we should all just get off Twitter. Well, right, but since we don't seem to have the self-control to do that, if it was killed for us, then we'd be forced. Right, although, you know, it's still possible. I mean, Elon Musk has, you know... 
flaws, but he also has an, an amazing innovative brain and he might very well come up with um, uh, some kind of solution that improves, improves this. Matt Iglesias wrote a piece about Twitter which was very um, uh, hopeful and he introduced me to Megablock. Do you know about Megablock? It's amazing. It's a, I do you know do. about oh, Megablock. I bet you know about because Megablock. I have been, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, it's this uh, website you can go to. If there's a tweet you see that is truly loathsome and objectionable, it allows you to block not only the author but all people who favorited the tweet. And so you no longer have to, and this is not like, well, do you believe that U.S. production of uh, domestic energy should be increased or decreased? No, this is, you know, if you want something to be, um, but can I just say one thing about the Elon Musk thing and Paul Pelosi, which really, forget about free speech for a moment. So you all know that he, for a moment, tweeted out a, um, an account from a source that is less than reputable. The same source said Hillary Clinton had a died. A terrible source. Yeah, yeah. It had said Hillary Clinton was di- had died, and the piece was full of, you know, just uh, awful rumor-mongering. And he, um, he tweeted this out, and he then deleted it. But it just seems to me, from a human perspective, you have a lever in your hand, and a guy is in a hospital with stitches in his head, and he's got children and grandchildren and a wife who are worried he's going to live, not live, what's he going to be like when it's over, and in your hand you have a switch that can either make their lives easier or make their lives harder, and you turn it to make their lives harder with your, 11, with your 100 million followers? Yeah, which is why I'm skeptical about his innovative brain being the one I want trying to solve this problem. We'll see. I hope you're right. The Supreme Court heard five hours of argument. That is a lot of hours of argument on Tuesday about affirmative action and the rather modest affirmative action programs that remain at Harvard and the University of North Carolina and whether those programs are unlawful and unconstitutional because they improperly take race into account in admissions. It is a complicated series of issues, but Emily's going to get get them explained. Um, so it's very clear, Emily, that the conservative <laughs> it's complicated that, that but the cons- very clear. It's very clear that the conservative majority on the Supreme Court is going to end affirmative action in university admissions. That that part is like, you know, it's not how they're conser- going to do it still yes. remains. Well, so what is the state of what is legal now? So current law, which is based on a series of Supreme Court decisions since 1978, says that what universities may do, are permitted to do, is to consider race as one factor among many in a holistic admissions process in which you're looking at the whole candidate. One of the pluses you can give effectively can be someone's racial identity. So the best way to think about it, I think, is as race-conscious admissions. But it cannot but it cannot be to redress past discrimination. It cannot be, yes. This is the really, I think, increasingly uh, destructive wrong turn the Supreme Court took. And this goes back to 1978 as well. The case is called Backey. It's the foundational one. Um, there wasn't five votes for this view, but the kind of controlling fifth vote opinion um, from Justice Powell says that the only permissible constitutional rationale is diversity. The benefits of diversity for everybody, not to redress past discrimination, even though clearly that is what a lot of the whole point of affirmative action actually is. So, yeah, this, there were so many... It's a problem. It was, well, no, it's weird because Roberts brings up the Civil War in, but I'm not asking you about that yet, but I you want can. you to explain that to me, the whole oboe player thing, but that's in a second, because what you've, because the idea that diversity is um, beneficial has been, there are lots of studies in corporations, better decision-making, et cetera, but 
when that was argued by the person arguing for University of North Carolina, Justice Thomas said, I, I, I swear I read this in the account. He said, I heard the same argument be used by segregationists. What did he mean? How is that? How are segregationists making the argument for better? I didn't understand what he meant. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that that really tracks with diversity per se, but I think what Thomas is, Thomas's concern about affirmative action is that it is essentially a form of paternalism that actually makes things worse for the supposedly benefited party. That you're saying this is a benefit, but really this is the badge of my skin color. Then I have to carry it around with me. Everybody thinks I didn't really deserve to get here for the reason. So maybe he was God. relating it to the segregationists as some kind of like token, but I'm not totally sure about how that tracks. So he was he was filing it under this argument you're making isn't the real reason you're making the argument. Yeah. And that so it's a pretext for something else. Yeah, and the underlying dispute that I think is related also to things a lot of things that Chief Justice Roberts said at oral argument is about the meaning of Brown and the meaning of the Fourteenth Amendment. Do we have the 14th Amendment and Brown versus Board because we are addressing race discrimination because we know that, you know, in the 14th Amendment context, people who were slaves had like an enormous, you know, set of obstacles in front of them. And we were trying to make black people equal and that we have continued to have a huge amount, like another hundred years. And so the focus on, um, you know, we don't want people to pay attention to skin color has to do with securing equal rights for black people and other people of color as America continues to more diversify. Or is it simply about race neutrality? In other words, is it not judging anybody by their skin color for any reason because that is poisonous to people's relationships, to the polity as a whole? And so then you claim that Brown and the 14th Amendment are about ending race consciousness, at which point affirmative action becomes not just unconstitutional, but like bad. But, but, it's, but, yes. it's, but that is a completely counter to the originalist view that this most of these justices subscribe to most of the time, right? That, they, that the 14th Amendment, the people who drafted the 14th Amendment were drafting it because they intended to redress the wrongs of slavery and help black people. Yes. And that was the intent of those framers. But yes. this, these, this court is not looking at the intent of those framers in the same way that they look at the intent of the framers around the Second yes. Amendment. They're going to come up with some way of claiming they're doing that when they write that opinion because <laughs> they will feel compelled to. But I think Justice Jackson in particular, both at this oral argument and the one about the redistricting case in Alabama from a few weeks ago, has been enormously um, effective in making the argument with historic, with examples from the passage of the 14th Amendment, the, the civil rights statutes that followed, in, in really showing why you're right about what you said about that originalist understanding. Isn't, isn't one of the biggest problems here for those people who would continue these policies is that, is that at least in the case of Harvard, Harvard has a totally indefensible admissions policy already. Yes. And so the idea... I mean, it's already admitting, you know, every every rich kid fencer, every you well, know Jared every, Kushner enough to fill the slots, yeah. Um, and their preferences for for legacies for for donors and for recruited athletes, recruited athletes at it's at a school like Harvard, it vastly benefits white kids, and so th so it's an indefensible admissions process, and so 
it shouldn't be defended. Yeah. So um, we were talking earlier with um, a friend of the GabFest, Josie Duffy Rice, and I was talking about the listening to the argument in the Harvard case, and she said, and which I found painful to listen to, largely for the reasons you said. When you look at Harvard's admissions policies and you see how the sausage is made, it's really unappealing. You have discrimination against Asian applicants. I think that's pretty clear. They were getting these lower personal scores. No one ever explained why, but, you know, given all the academic excellence among Asian applicants, it seems like those the number of um, Asian American admissions is depressed relative to achievement. Um, and then you just have all the other unattractive parts of it. Also, just tons of affluence. And, and this is not just Harvard. I mean, it's Yale, too. It's other elite universities. Overrepresentation of the top 1% of the top 0.1%. And so all of that is icky. But Josie pointed out to me that if you listen to the argument with University of North, North Carolina, Carolina mm-hmm. which was free of much, <laughs> at least there's over Some. affluence, but it was much better. And that is maybe a fairer test. It's just that everything is all tangled up in each other, right? So then affirmative action looks, if, if we just had this one thing the universities were doing within an admissions process that looked more fair generally, I think it would be more defensible. But that's not the case. And it's really hard to defend elite university admissions, per se, because there is no fairness in them. Um, There are just many, many more applicants who will thrive at Harvard than there are spots for them. So the idea is you can't be a steward of getting this calibration exactly right because you get it so wrong in every other possible way. Yeah, that it's so flawed that the sausage making is such a mess that, of course, this part looks bad, too, right? So, yes. Don't you assume that at least the elite schools, when when the Supreme Court says you can't have a checkbox to say you're black or whatever whatever they are using to, to make these decisions, that Harvard and Yale and Stanford and MIT, they're going to find a way around this. Well, don't they already come up, don't they already have like a second language? It's like Columbus, when he wanted to trick all the people on uh, his crew, he kept two logbooks and would show them the one that said, oh, we're all doing fine, when the real one was like, who knows where the hell we are? Don't they have a a second language already that allows them to talk about all the other stuff you were talking about without being explicit about it? And therefore, if they've habituated themselves to this second language, it seems to me creating a new word that allows to get around this seems to be be real easy. I mean, possibly, although I actually think when you have a bunch of admissions officers in the room, there sometimes are faculty in the room, too, or just there for like a day or two. I actually don't think that they speak in code. I think that they can be race conscious in their admissions. And so in the end, when they're looking at all these very qualified applicants, but they know that if they don't, you know, um, that if SAT scores have to be the same for everyone, they're going to be fewer, in particular, black applicants when it comes to SATs, they just override it with something else. And like, that's okay. I mean, especially if you don't think SAT scores count for very much, right? It's only okay, though, if the law remains the way it is. It's about to be not okay. Right. And so who who, who polices that? I mean, the admissions office No, I mean, does, to just determine, let's say the court does what you expect the court to do, how, does it, how then do you have a non-affirmative action? I mean, what's to keep Harvard from just... What are the race-neutral alternatives? Is, right? So, Emily, what I'm asking is, what are the race-neutral alternatives? <laughs> well, no, so- but that's actually not what I'm asking. 
What I'm asking is, a, a yes, what are they? What, let me ask you two questions. And David, okay. I'm sorry to stomp all over your question asking, but what are the race neutral alternatives? A, B, why couldn't they just cheat and do whatever um, they want? Right. Okay. So let's take A because I have thought about it more. So this was the part of argument I found more surprising, which was I thought there were at least Justice Kavanaugh, but maybe Justice Barrett, maybe. We're re and and definitely Roberts. We're reaching for race neutral alternatives. It's all going to be fine. You know what, elite universities? There are nine states that have effectively banned race based admissions, affirmative action. Some of them, it's true, the most elite schools have had a decline among um, black students, but it hasn't been as bad as everyone thought. If you also get rid of legacies or you have fewer athlete preferences, um, squash came up a lot in oral argument. <laughs> Justice Gorsuch was outraged about squash. Then you can do this a different way. Maybe your SAT percentile, Harvard, goes from the 99th to the 98th. Oh, we're not going to cry for you about that. Maybe you don't have as many rich students. Well, wouldn't it be good to have more socioeconomic diversity on your campuses? Like, go figure it out. And when you look at some of the um, top 10% plans that states like California and Texas have used where you give admissions to the top 10% high school students in a particular place, you see pretty good results because of residential and school segregation, unfortunately. Um, and it is also true that Certainly, if you had fewer affluent students, you could have more um, socioeconomic diversity that could also track right. with more traditional racial diversity. One other, so I actually thought, and you know what, the plaintiffs uh, who are asking to end affirmative action, they seem to really want to say, you know what, you can do a lot of racial diversity through these race-neutral means. They had simulations. There was a lot of fighting oh, yeah. over whether their simulations were going to pan out. But they were not saying, you can't do any of this. That's just a proxy. We're going to sue you again immediately to right. make you stop. Now, they could but, do that the next time but, anyway. But Someone else could. I think the but. reason they can't cheat, John, is they would if they got sued, they'd be in huge trouble. And if they, some admissions officer is yeah, going to drop a dime on it. And yeah, you can't, so you, you just can't. People don't want to do lie it. under oath in the end. Does Gorsuch, does Gorsuch play squash? Is that why he was? Oh, that's a that's, good question. No, is that he, why he was worried, no, worried about answer. his ox being gored? So, Emily, just to close this out, the, the group, another group that's being discriminated against in university admissions these days is women. At uh, many colleges, it is much harder to get in than uh, if you're a woman than if you're a man because men are just, they're bad. Boys are bad. I don't know if you've noticed. Any of you have a parents of a don't boy. Say that. But boys are bad. Too. They're I bad at school. They're not. bad at extracurriculars. They don't get their applications done. I don't like these generalizations and they're stereotypes just bad. at all. Girls are good. No, I, I have, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I have some you of did all. already. Um, but no, but there is this discrimination that's going on. Yeah, so this came up at argument two, and Justice Kagan, Justice Kagan, I don't think she ever could actually troll. That's like just not her way. But she brought up this question, well, what about men? Could you have a thumb on the scale for men? Which clearly the universities are doing. And the answer was equivocal. I mean, if you're going down the current Supreme Court jurisprudence, the answer is like maybe, because there's strict scrutiny under the Supreme Court jurisprudence for courts to to decide whether you can have race-based classifications, but only this other intermediate scrutiny for gender-based, so like maybe it would be okay. 
That seems like a very weird answer. And the, the, no one really wanted to say that it would be okay. It was sort of dismissed. But I think it's, it's yeah, I mean, it is happening. And it's an example of how part of this laser focus on this race-based um, race conscious admissions, it's why it's so unfortunate because there are all these other things that are happening to bake this pie of exclusive college admissions. And yet, like, this is the one that, that we're, everyone's picking on. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you've baked a pie and you're exclusive picking pie on of it. Admissions. Exclusive <laughs> You're having a drink to go with the exclusive pie of admissions. What are you going to be chattering about, John? You want me to go first? That is why I said, what are you going to be chattering about, John? Not, what are you going to be chattering about, I Emily? I first. So in London, there was this... Um, there was this art, oh, so there was this art installation in London where there were these, what it looked like enormous Christmas ornaments. And there was a storm, and they rolled down the street, and people had to get out of the way. <laughs> That's it? That's like only the very beginning Just of kidding. the John Dickerson chat. Just kidding. Okay, my chatter starts in September 18th, 1925. <laughs> and this was the day Settle that... Back, folks. This was the day that... Uh, um, I'm going to call for a slide in a second, but we're not there yet. So in, on September 18th, 1925, as all of you know, this was the day that Calvin Coolidge wore a straw hat. Now you're thinking, sure, we all know that story. Um, but the other story that you're thinking of but isn't about this is the time that Calvin Coolidge wore um, a Dakota tribe head, a headdress in Deadwood, South, um, South Dakota, when he was photographed wearing the headdress. And it is that photograph that John Kennedy later cited when he said, I never will put on any hat in any campaign context. Um, but that's not what this story is about. The story today is that Coolidge wore this um, straw hat on the 18th of September, which was three days after Felt Hat Day. Now, you might be wondering, what in God's name is he talking about? In which case, you would be a member of my family. Anyway, <laughs> the problem is that in 1925, you're in the middle of the Prohibition, and during Prohibition, which was from 1920 to 1933, America had nothing to drink, and so they got irretrievably silly. A silly country has rules, and one of these rules, and at this time advertising is sort of coming into its first flower, is that, was to teach Americans to care desperately about arbitrary fashion choices. So according to American Hatter magazine, before the 15th of May, no one except the notoriety seeker would publicly wear the straw hat. That was true of anyone wearing a straw hat after September 15th. So between May 15th and September 15th, you could wear a straw hat. Otherwise, no, you could not do that. And by, talking, by straw hat, this is what we're talking about. Those fellas, they are wearing straw hats, and you think like, oh, well, they're on their way to a barbershop quartet. Are those called boaters? Yeah. Okay. Do we have the other one, uh, the crowd shot? Um, but the thing of it is... That, that, doesn't um, look like, that look, doesn't look like summer there. Everybody was wearing wow. these hats. Wow. Everybody was wearing these hats. So, um, like so how irretrievably silly were Americans? Well, okay, remember this date, the 18th of February, uh, September 1925. If Calvin Coolidge had been walking down the street in, Pencil, in uh, Pennsylvania 
On the 17th, the day before, the straw hat would have been a cause for the Secret Service to step in because, and I'm now reading from the front page of the Oklahoma newspaper, the headline is, man breaks 25 straw hats, willingly pays fine. Philadelphia Dateline, September 17th from the Associated Press. John Finn was arrested on a street corner today as he was busily demolishing straw hats he had forcibly seized from their owners. He would put his fist through the crowns and hang the wrecks on a convenient post. He had demolished 25 out-of-season hats before police arrived. Finn was fined $10. He paid and said it was worth it. This is the... Okay, this is the paintball of 1925. It's, it's paintball, it's memes, it's a variety of things. But, but, um, but it sounds like he was punished. So it sounds like actually there was, was no, no crime, that, that the crime was, was destroying straw hats you after have, September 17th. September no, 15th. he was, uh, say that again. Oh, well, I mean, you can't just, well, stick with the story for a minute. I so agree. this didn't just happen. Um, so. This would then became a subject of commentary in the newspapers in which people, uh, important people said things like, quote, no man likes to have his hat snatched from his head by somebody he has not yet been introduced to. Sort of laying down these um, principles. And if we had a show that week in 1925, one of us would have pointed out that, in fact, while the 15th of September was felt hat day, after which you were not supposed to wear a straw hat, in Pennsylvania, as the New York Times reported, Pittsburgh brokers to wear their hats until October 1st. The piece goes on to report that the floor committee of brokers in Pittsburgh decided, quote, that straw hats may be worn with all the propriety and dignity attached thereto until and including October 1st. So you see these lines are gray. So you're thinking, this has gone on too long. You also would be a member of my family. But check this out. Three years earlier, in 1922, there were eight days of riots over these damn hats, in which hundreds of gang, like hundreds of kids, went around fighting. New York Times, September 16, 1922. Gangs of young hoodlums ran riot in various parts of the city last night, smashing unseasonable straw hats and trampling them in the street. A favorite <laughs> practice of the gangsters was to arm themselves with sticks, some with nails at the tip, and compel men wearing straw hats to run a gauntlet. That was Biden, Biden policy. Right, exactly. Corn pop was in the house. One complaint was made of a gang swarming an open streetcar and attacking the passengers to get their hats. The New York Tribune, straw hat bashing orgy bears heads from Battery to Bronx. So what was the cultural tension here? Like, why? Why this? Prohibition. Nothing to drink. People just went crazy. People went nuts. So... The cops bring these kids into the um, pol- into the uh, the jail, and the New York and the New York Tribune reports. Patrolman King and Lamore came in hatless. Apparently, when you're going to steal straw hats, you also can steal policemen's hats. And indignant with seven boys, all less than 15 years old, who they said were members of a gang that had knocked off their hats and trampled them. Lieutenant Lennon invited the boys' fathers to come to the station and spank them, and the invitation was cordially accepted. Straw hat bonfires were lit at night, and then a magistrate by the name of, wait for it, Magistrate Hatting, (laughs) rules it is against the law to smash a man's hat, and he has a right to wear it in a January snowstorm if he wishes. A man's hat is just as much to be defended as his watch, and the courts are going to enforce the laws. Now we come back to David's point about men. 
<laughs> Helen Rowland, writing in the, Philip, the Brooklyn Eagle, anticipated all of this early in September when she said, the average man's devotion to his hat is one of life's great mysteries. It seems to be something sacred in his life, which he cherishes and protects as passionately as he does his dignity, his honor, and his grandmother's memory. He will fight for it, quarrel over it, and risk his life under a motor truck or a trolley car to salvage its remains in a wind. When a boy wants to start a fight, all he does is snatch another boy's hat, and the battle is on. She wasn't the only one. This was the subject of editorials. The incident may be regarded as an outbreak of the sheer exuberance of youth. It is well known the longer, an- the, the longer animal spirits are restrained, the more violent will be their escape when the opportunity presents itself. And if the opportunity is unduly delayed, one will be created out of hand. Pittsburgh is full of hardworking young men, and they seem to think there are not enough holidays and not enough public games and carnivals. It is of a piece with the reckless joyousness that makes a cowboy burn to shoot up a town. But cowboyism in Pittsburgh is not as harmonious with the surroundings as it is in Wyoming. So... Does this just fizzle out like all weird bursts of human energy? It, like the Coolidge presidency itself, (laughs) fizzles out and just goes away because some other damn fad comes in. There is Silent Cal in the straw hat wearing it at the appropriate time. Is that a And undoubtedly, yes, he's he's, uh, shaking the hand of, I don't know, is that Walter John? uh, I don't know. um, I'm just excited that I was right about the uniform. Yeah. What, that it was baseball? Yeah. After I said it, I was worried. Not squash or fencing. I don't know. (laughs) Just Um, something. (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, undoubtedly this is why Coolidge didn't run again. Um, That's not true. But... uh, (laughs) When Coolidge, and there's a now shut up, but when Coolidge said he wasn't running, he wrote it on a piece of paper, I do not choose to run for president in 1928, cut it into strips of paper and handed out a strip to each individual member of the press corps and then left the room. Wow. So very, that's, yeah. that's kind of serial huh. killer behavior. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. He's got a real jaunty look, Coolidge. Yeah, well, it's the hat. <sighs> John Dickerson, tour de force. Emily, what is your chatter? I really, this is just so not equal to that. I am excited that that the book Fleischman is in trouble is about to be on television. (laughs) Maybe I will just stop there. Um, Okay, so this is the most like demographically predictable chatter ever because this is a book about people our age, people getting divorced, like the vicissitudes of long-term relationships. In this book, it opens with the um, ex-wife of the main character just like, disappearing. And I just, this book, I don't know, I ate it up. Lots of people I knew had strong reactions to it. And it's coming, I think, to FX as a TV series later in November. And I just feel like they cast it perfectly. So the main character, Toby, is going to be Jesse Eisenberg, who has exactly the sort of, like, slightly dolorous, like, I don't know, down on his luck affect um, for this part. And then Lizzie Kaplan is going to play his kind of wise, sarcastic friend um, who's a stand-in for Taffy Brodsner Ackner, who's a colleague of mine, um, well, or was now, presumably she's moved on to different things, but um, that seems great. And then Toby's ex-wife is Claire Danes. It just seems like it's going to be great. Can't wait. That book was my Bible when my marriage fell apart. That was... (laughs) 
It's a great, great book. <laughs> I, is, is that, is that a blurb that goes on the book? or? <laughs> I did try to... I have friends with, who are friends with Taffy, and I wanted to kind of meet with her and tell her how much her book had meant to me. Yeah. And, and liberated you, as I recall. Yeah, we can. That's that's for another. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's a like, that's a cocktail plus, cocktail plus, cocktail plus chatter after dark yeah. plus. That's after the end of prohibition. Uh, so my chatter is also um, is shorter than John's. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> I am reading the Candy House, which is Jennifer Egan's new novel, and I'm really enjoying it. But it is a book that has made me realize that we are in the middle of an epidemic, a fiction epidemic. I wish that I had $1 billion for every novel I have read recently, which is about a near-future billionaire tech visionary with a profound but ultimately alienating scheme. Flawed. It's very flawed. Yes. To remake humanity by externalizing our consciousness to the internet. And if I had a billion dollars for every one of those, I would own Twitter. There's Jennifer Egan has Bix Bouton whose company Mandala figures out how to download consciousness so we can share our memories. There's Neil Stevenson's Fall, where billionaire Dodge Forthrest scans his consciousness and becomes the first citizen of a virtual world of scanned consciousnesses. There is Vahini Vara's reclusive billionaire King Rao, who figures out how to scan consciousnesses onto the internet and allow them to be shared. There's Ernest Klein's James Holliday, Halliday, who has downloaded his consciousness to the internet, where it has gone rogue. Or Dave Egger's billionaires, Ty Gospodonoff and May Holland, who are also doing this. I, for one, am not going to be downloading my consciousness to the internet. And Never I've already done well. it. I've already done it. Um, but it's just like, enough with this. Enough with it. Like, let's stop. Let's stop having, let us bar that as a plot point. You understand, though, why novelists have been thinking about this and trying to figure it out. It's just amazing that they've all been on this similar journey, and now they need to have another journey. Uh, listeners, you also have great chatters. You send them to us. You email them to us at gabfest.slate.com. You tweet them to us at at gabfest. And we have a live listener chatter here. John Campbell McMillian. Are you here? Yay. Yay. Oh. Wow. Hi. Hello. At the ready. So John, uh, by way, so John has now come on stage. John uh, emailed us a chatter the other day, and it was about Atlanta, and he was said he was in Atlanta, and we were like, "We're coming to Atlanta. Do it live." And here he is. Yay! Welcome. Well, actually, John, my chatter was also going to be on straw hats, oh. and so I have to come up with something oh, new no. on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I recently took a class with the Atlanta Citizens Police Academy. And this is a free course that's open to any resident of Atlanta that can pass a background check. And it gives people an introduction to just about any aspect of policing that you can think about. We learned about traffic stops and homicide investigations and drug investigations and forensics, special event security. Uh, And then we also took field trips. We went to the 911 call center. We met the SWAT police, which is very cool. And then also, finally, to complete the course, you do a ride-along with a police officer for an eight-hour shift. And that was all very fun. And uh, I just found it very highly worthwhile. Um, It introduces people to lots of perspectives and and information that an ordinary person wouldn't get otherwise if they didn't take the course. Uh, A lot of my friends, I think, are very distrustful of the police, and I'm certainly obvious, I understand why that's the case. So I was very attuned to any evidence of cops seeming biased or unreasonable or unfair. And my impressions were mostly all positive. To the contrary, the, the Atlanta cops that I met were 
first of all, very candid in response to you know, questions that could be construed as tough or critical. And, um, and it was, so I had, a, I had a terrific experience. I've been recommending it to people. And then one of the unintended benefits of taking the course I found is that if you do finish this class, you get social permission to walk up to police officers and you say, hi, I'm John. I took the Citizens Police Academy. And then it opens out the window to a, a pleasant conversation that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think they're pleased that some people are taking the time to learn about their jobs from their perspectives. And so it's all been a really good experience. I, I can only speak, of course, to the course in Atlanta, but my understanding is that other large city police departments have similar classes. So um, if anyone's interested in, in learning about policing from behind the badge, it's, uh, it's something that I think might be worthwhile. How much time did it take? It's a 24-hour class, so three hours a night for eight weeks, and then the ride-along is an eight-hour shift. So. That is fascinating. Wow, hold on. Wow. More questions. Well, yeah, sorry. Um, were, you, were you interested in, in finding, learning more about the police, or did you just hear about this, and you're like, oh, this would be a cool thing to do? I learned about it because there's an, also an event that the Atlanta police have called Coffee with Cops. And so every zone will, once or twice a year, they have cops who will just meet you and meet citizens who have issues. And almost everyone who shows up is there to complain about something or they want more police protection. And I was just curious about policing. So I showed up and they were very freaked out. They're like, really? You want to know more about our <laughs> yeah. job? That's yes. for you. So yes. they told me about the class. Um, but I am writing a book on crime and policing in New York City since the 60s, and that's a work of history, but I still am interested in police work today. From 60s to when? 1963 to, well, this is a dispute with my agent. I wanted to go to 2001, they want me to take it to the present, which is like another year of work. Sec second volume. Well, right. we'll see. We'll, we'll see how. One or the other. But anyway, I hope to, uh, I'm making some progress on it, and it's been a lot of fun. Oh my that's God, great. that is Thank you, John. awesome. Thank, Thank you, John. Thank you. No, Thank that's you really cool. Much. Thank That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. They couldn't be here in Atlanta, sadly. But our live show was produced by Alicia Montgomery and Katie Rayford. Thank you, guys. And special thanks to Charles Isbell and our host at Georgia Tech. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations at Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Our Slate Plus segment today is questions from our audience, and I have picked out a few of them that we can do. So what's y'all's take? I'm reading as written. Thank you. What's y'all's take on the importance and or effectiveness of stunt protests? Recently, the stop oil attacks on artworks, for example, asks Aaron. That's a great question. It is a great question. So I'm trying to channel my like inner creative imaginative self to say something positive about this. I've been really... <laughs> Okay, I, next question. I've been really upset about the artwork protests. I know that the paintings have glass on them and that it seems like the paintings are okay, but it just seems so um, not what art is for, to throw things at it. I'm just, it feels really misplaced to me. It feels like not a clever stunt. Um, whereas, like, a clever stunt I could go for. What would be a clever stunt that you would go for? 
Well, I'm not sure this is a great one, but in Philadelphia, to protest the um, potential impeachment of the district attorney, Larry Krasner, people did, like, they called it a circus, and then they, like, had a circus in a park. Like, circus, you know, people on stilts, et cetera. But isn't the idea of protest to inconvenience somebody, not turn it into a party? Well, Well, it was different to make ridiculous, right? Well, what do you think of the artwork protest? I don't know. I don't know. I don't... my initial reaction is that it doesn't, it, it's just also tough timing. Like, on the one hand, uh, if, that's, if, if you're concerned about climate change, no better moment than the present for all the reasons that we know, and also because a lot of the climate change concerns are, um, although this isn't entirely true, um, Ukraine has scrambled the way people think about climate. In some cases, it's hastened the the movement to get to net zero um, because a lot of decisions are having to be made faster because they don't want to take Russian oil uh, or as much of it. Um, so I don't really know. I don't know. I mean, it gets a lot of attention for climate change. I just wonder if it gets a lot of irritated attention. Like, does it really reach people in the way that you want to reach them? Well, I am... I, it is. It definitely gets irritated attention, but... I do think there's a there's a kind of old uh, yeah lameness to us sitting here saying oh they well if there should there are great correct stunt protests uh, that I, we we can design I don't I don't want to be associated with that, that I was, would not try to design them but, but yeah, I, that's I did why I was hesitant very though daddy in my like anger at those protesters yeah I mean I don't know I'm I read. Um, it was, I guess it was an Abby Hoffman book. I can't remember. I don't think it was Steele's book. And it was really, I really loved it when I read it and, and thought, like, there is such a value in stunt, in stunt protests. And you, as with almost anything, you 95% of them are bad and you get it wrong. But that, that allows the kind of creative ferment. Yeah. And as long as the artwork, I mean, I do not want these, these, these uh, bits of human patrimony to be destroyed. But it sounds like they're not being destroyed. Maybe they're temporarily damaged, whatever. But it's, I think that's, I think I'm very reluctant to criticize it. Okay. Um, Wait, aren't we all reluctant to criticize it? No, I feel less okay. reluctant. I just don't have a clear take on it. And so I, uh, I'm... Um, for Emily, is there a way lawyers can get involved in your prison slash writing slash advocacy project that was featured in a recent special segment? Yes, I would love for you to get involved. You can send me an email, or um, if you want a slightly more complicated email address, you could send a note to prisonlettersproject at yale.edu. But sending it to me, just my name, at Gmail will work too. We've gotten a number of queries from lawyers around the country asking if they might be considered um, to be matched up with some of the people who write to us. And so my amazing students, um, who are super organized, have been thinking about which of the cases, mostly by where, you know, by place, might be possible matches. And we feel like that's part of our mission, is to match people. Um, So yes, absolutely, we'd love to hear from you. Um, there are a bunch of Stacey Abrams questions. I'm going to read one of them. Stacey Abrams has done a lot of positive things, but I always feel uneasy about her decision not to concede the 2018 governor's election, even though it was done for a good cause. What do you guys think? What do y'all think? I think you meant to say. Was that more helpful or harmful to democracy on balance, John? Well, it's hard to know. You know, obviously, history is... Uh, history is is a lot different. There should be a space for candidates who feel like they were wrong to make their case. And to, to, but there are lines and 
and and once you've made your case and it doesn't nobody it doesn't work in the in a court of law that's it you move on um and i don't know i don't know her candidacy well enough she just she's not built her new candidacy on this no i mean what happened is i i think is that she waited a few days to have all the votes counted and then she said I know that Brian Kemp is the governor. That's how the speech starts. Then in the middle, she talks about how there was voter suppression. And, you know, I think it's 50,000 plus uh, registrations of people who'd been kicked off the rolls. And she was very suspicious about that. And so she did think that the, this system at that moment was rigged against her. And she made that point. But then she also, you know, said that she, she wouldn't use the word conceded. And I wonder if that was a mistake but she did not continue to contest the election. She filed a lawsuit about the system, but she did not go around saying that Kemp wasn't the governor. Um, and so I think it is very different right. from what Trump did. But the idea of not conceding the race, I think in retrospect, does not look like such a great move. So the question is whether it is not a great move in the abstract or whether it's not a great move because you then right. saw how somebody who wouldn't let that go, and now there's the majority of candidates running in the Republican Party believe something for which there's no foundation, whether that's what affects your and view. And if they weren't citing her in this kind of unfair, exaggerated way, we would have all forgotten about this, right? It's only that it's become useful talking point yeah. for them that we're even thinking about this, I think. Yeah. Because there was a real difference. For David... I get the easiest question. Who was a worse president? Bush or, guess what my choice is? Bush or Trump? Huh. I mean, is that a serious question? Well, I mean, it, Iraq war. Well, first of all, no Bush specified here. So I'm going to assume, well, but I'm going to assume. Uh, so I mean, oh my I'm going to assume it's W. w. George oh W. Bush was, was a mediocre to not very good president. And Donald Trump is by far the most dangerous president this country's ever had. Like, by far. With me, you know, maybe, maybe Andrew Jackson is in there and maybe, maybe James Buchanan and, and Andrew Johnson. But it's, it's not even a close discussion. And George W. Bush is an honorable person also and a human being of, you know... You lost them at the beginning and the end. Well, it's, I mean, I, but I actually don't think, I mean, I think it's, I mean, I'm a believer in sort of in politeness and in, in kind of basic decency in politics. And George W. Bush has a lot of flaws, but that was something that he, he practiced. And I think it's a thing that has been leached out of the Republican Party and to its, to the, and it's tragic and dangerous for the country to not have that. And so I value that in him. And maybe he should be speaking up more about that problem. Well, he does speak up about it, but, but the Bush family has become a, a punchline for the Republican Party, which is incredible. That was the party that defined the Republican Party for a generation. Yes. And it's a fucking punchline. Um, that will not do that. John, let's close with this. The, that question was, are we actually just fucked? Um, <laughs> John, what cocktail do you recommend while enduring the midterm election night coverage that oh, you will be doing? When you started that question, when you said, what cocktail do you recommend? I was going to say the next one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what cocktail do I recommend while enduring the election? Well, the election may turn out 
exactly the way you want it to. So no champagne. champagne. Yeah. Yeah. A champagne cocktail or just champagne? Champagne will be if it's not contested. When people said champagne cocktail, what did they mean? Is it just champagne? What is it? Wait. What is that? Oh, no. oh, okay. That's pretty good. All right. Sounds like a breakfast. What do you, so what do you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> what do you recommend, John? Uh, what do I recommend? Well, I don't know. It depends. There will be some people who will be sad. There will be other people who will be gleeful. And there will be other people, uh, perhaps present company included, that will need a lot of Red Bull because it's going to take two weeks to figure out what's actually happened. So, or maybe till January. I can't. So there was an, an Iowa primary where we were both in Iowa. It was when we both worked for Slate. And I think I remember, I can't remember if it was, maybe it wasn't the night of the primary. No, but I remember that you weren't drinking at all. You were like, I need my wits about me. And then you got really sick of the plane. Do you remember we flew, we did, we, it was the night of the results in Iowa when we flew there on Hillary's plane to New Hampshire and I was like coughing up a lung. So sick. And I was so sick. That was in I think that year the primary the caucuses were near the beginning of January. I stayed sick straight through. If we listen to the shows, listen to me on that show. It's like I've had a whole carton of camels. And uh, and then in March, my eardrum exploded because of that sickness and I couldn't fly anymore. For like three months. So yeah, that was a tender night of us on that bouncy plane. Yeah. <laughs> there, there was an event once like this I, on YouTube where Christopher Hitchens is asked two questions. Uh, what's one item you can't live without? And what is your favorite kind of scotch? And he said, I don't understand what the difference between the two questions is. <laughs> uh, I, don't really have a, I don't really have a clever answer because my... Uh, the fact is, my cocktail repertoire is singular. Well, you could say that. Okay, gin. So this is actually, thank you. <laughs> so what you've just seen or heard is really how we work together. It's a collaborative experience where we come to know ourselves more intimately by being in conversation with people who know us better than we know ourselves. And my brother's even here. He's the one who said martini. So the point is, whether you're winning or losing or waiting, the only answer is gin. And that is a great way to end it. Bye, Slate Plus. Thank you, Atlanta. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>